So to start off, I want you to think. If you're sleeping with your Apple Watch or your Fitbit or Whoop, or who doesn't know it, it's simply amazing. I use it all the time. Measuring your heart rate while you sleep. Think about it. Are you sleeping online or offline? So I'm sure that you understand now that, you know, through the Internet of Things, sensors and devices were constantly online. And the more we use these devices, the more data we generate. And in a self-reinforcing loop, the more data, the better AI and Web3 technologies can transform patient care and revolutionize healthcare. We will talk about all this and more with our amazing guest today, Robin Farman Farmayan, a professional speaker and healthcare entrepreneur with a passion for leveraging cutting-edge AI software, devices, and pharma companies to improve patient outcomes. With over 180 speaking engagements in 15 countries and four published books, Robin is a thought leader in the field of digital health and is here to share her insights and expertise. So welcome, Robin, to the show. I'm so excited to have a conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. You're better off you're in sunny California while I'm here in rainy New York, but definitely uh, we'll make up for this during our conversation. <laughs> Thanks for being on Reperception, Robin. It's such a pleasure to have you here. But before we start off our conversation, I just wanted to remind our audience that this podcast is produced by my company, Andrea Yoro Keynotes, in partnership with Inevitable Education, the leading global platform to upskill devs and engineers for blockchain and Web3, aimed at providing new leaders the right toolkit to navigate and master the world of Web 3.0 and AI. And last but not least, I'm your host, Andrea Iorio. I'm an Italian keynote speaker to more than 100 companies per year, focusing on digital transformation, leadership, and innovation, and a best-selling author of two books in Portuguese. Yes, I'm based out of New York City, but I worked over the last 10 years in Brazil as the head of Tinder and as a chief digital officer at L'Oreal. I'm the official host of NVIDIA Brazil's podcast called VEI, entirely about AI, and I'm a columnist at the MIT Technology Review Brazil. I count more than 100,000 followers across social media, mainly on LinkedIn, and you can ping me there or through my website, andreaiario.com. Anytime for feedback, complaints, or, you know, they're welcome praises. So let's kick off our conversation, Robin. I'm really excited for it. And the truth is that what really intrigued me uh, when we first uh, got in touch uh, is your journey. So is your journey that brought you, you know, core of the healthcare industry, you're based out of the Silicon Valley, you interact with a lot of startups and companies in the sector. So how did you become an expert in the field of AI and healthcare? Tell us a bit more about your story. Sure. So uh, I've worked across over 25 early stage companies in pharma, med device and AI based software. And so I really kind of get, get that global view. The way I got a lot of the information, of course, is like anyone else is researching because I was writing a lot of books. And so you really dive very deeply into a lot of technology when you're writing a book on AI, obviously. But the reason I decided to do all this in the first place is because as a teenager, I was misdiagnosed with an autoimmune disease, ended up having 43 hospitalizations, six major surgeries, and three organs removed. By the time I was 26, which was a few years after I'd had my entire large intestine surgically removed, my doctors were telling me I was cured, but I wasn't, and I was in pretty hardcore pain. And so over a period of time, they kept upping my methadone dose or opiate dose until eventually they switched me over to methadone, 80 milligrams a day, which is a giant dose. It's and I hated huge. it. And it's huge. And, and I was basically a shut-in. I could barely function on a daily basis. And what I was hearing from them was that was the rest of my life. And so I said, absolutely not. I fired my entire healthcare team. 
dropped my own methadone dose by about 40%. Um, I got off, got off it completely after a while. Mm -hmm. I rebuilt my care team and I ended up getting diagnosed correctly with Crohn's. And within 24 hours of going on the right medication, I went into remission. Wow. And so it's, it's crazy, not only how incredibly powerful pharmaceuticals are, right? Really, they are the backbone of everything because I know I would not be alive today if it weren't for uh, medications like Remicade and, of course, antibiotics when, with things like surgery. And so I have a deep respect for medications and the pharmaceutical interest, industry, but I also seeing it um, kind of smash into medical device and AI software. And so no longer over the next five or 10 years, are we going to have just pharma and just, you know, digital health? Everything is going to have a device or a software component to it, even a regular medication. And it's interesting and definitely so. And it's very interesting, Robin, because it all started from a diagnosis, a misdiagnosis. And uh, can you remind me which year was uh, this happened? Uh, so this happened back in the 90s. In the 90s. So definitely not yes. so much technology available as uh, we do have now. And interestingly enough, though, with all of this technology, um, if we take away AI, and we'll not talk about that in a second, how it impacts all that we have, but if we look at overall general digital technologies, still they have, yes, improved the accuracy of diagnostics, but they haven't really made healthcare as predictive as it is becoming now with AI. Because, again, when we look at that, okay, automized processes, it, it really improved a number of things. But when it came to diagnostics, if we look at the impact that AI is having in just a number of years uh, compared to you know, the last two decades, since the 90s to, let's say, 10 years ago, uh, I think it's much more exponential right now. How, how do you see the impact of AI on this? Because now we're getting to the core of our discussion. It definitely is how AI is reinventing and, and transforming everything at this point. Absolutely. So I have a phrase um, that I heard Ray Kurzweil say once, and he said, when you're dealing with AI, life begins at 1 billion data points. Right. And that explains a lot when you're thinking about how AI is being applied now, because we really needed to have those clinical grade databases of patient data that were machine readable or at least um, being able to get into a machine because most of it was through faxes and yeah. then um, aggregating it and things like that. And so a lot of that data is still locked up in things like the electronic medical records, but with remote patient monitoring, we're seeing continuous devices going into the home, not just the Apple Watch, but companies like uh, BioIntelliSense or BioBeat. BioBeat has a PPG sensor that sticks to the chest, and they take millions of data points a day per patient. And so when you start to understand just how much data we can start to really create at the home and then, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, you understand why all of a sudden we'll have enough data to see a pattern analysis, which is what AI is best at, right? And, and that's when you can start to look at things like predictive analytics. And that's interesting, Robin, because a lot of people fear AI and oftentimes, especially people fear losing their jobs to AI. The truth is human beings cannot really handle that much amount of data. So why don't we see AI as an ally? We'll, we'll talk a little bit later about the impact that it might have on the professions in healthcare. What will a doctor do? Would, would a radiologist do uh, since AI is better? 
you know, diagnosing and predicting. Uh, will it change and reshape these professions? I'm, I'm very interested in getting your take on this. But since we're already talking about AI, maybe we can expand more and look at general trends and tech trends that are impacting healthcare. Even beyond AI, there has been a lot of talk around the metaverse. Uh, there are other technologies that are definitely impacting the space. Um, there's a lot of you know tests I know about a, a trial around digital twins that uh, Merck and uh, American startup Unlearn.ai are working together on creating digital twins of uh, clinical trials, patients, and so on. Uh, what do you see as an expert in the space as being the main trends? Uh, AI is, of course, one, but going beyond that. So uh, the other main trend, and this was started in part by the large payers, is the shifting care to the patient's home. And so we're okay. seeing CVS, Aetna, uh, which is one company now, uh, United, Humana, uh, Walgreens, Walmart, and, all, and CVS all really investing billions, billions of dollars on healthcare in the home from value-based healthcare in the home for seniors to just regular hospital at home or acute care at home. And so with the large payers um, putting these billions and billions of dollars into that area, I say, you know, those who control the flow of money have the power, right? And the major insurance companies in this country have the control of the flow of money. And so what they wanna do, right, is will end up being democratized throughout the entire healthcare system because they do have so much power. But in addition, we're seeing, of course, the big tech getting into healthcare, Amazon and Apple, right? Amazon recently purchased, and it's still going through, One Medical for a little under $4 billion. Overnight, that gave them a presence throughout parts of the United States with actual hardcore clinics and blood labs, the same way that they did it with Whole Foods, right? Whole Foods true. for grocery, they did one medical for healthcare. That's a great analogy. It's true. It's very similar. And it's interesting how big tech, as you mentioned, I think uh, Tim Cook uh, some years ago said, when you, you know, go in the future and uh, let's say, looking back at what Apple has most contributed to society, uh, he mentioned that it would be in healthcare. So, and since we know that really, you know, like Apple, yes, there is the, you know, like the Apple healthcare and a number of things, but we don't feel, or at least I don't feel that they have yet done everything that they, you know, propose to do in a, such a sentence. Uh, we can expect more and more coming from big tech. Well, healthcare is a huge market. And so it's definitely very attractive. Uh, do you think they will disrupt the retail as they have been doing or, uh, you know, big tech entering this space more and more? They've already done it, but yep. definitely we expect to, to happen more and more. Yes, absolutely. And so going back to like Apple and Amazon with examples, Amazon buying one medical means that they control a really nice and easy to use EMR. Right. That is so much better than what I get when I go and see my doctors at the high end hospitals and then I see my primary care at one medical and I'm like, this is an EMR that is actually easy for patients to use. You can exactly. upload. And so companies like Amazon now own that user experience and they're experts at the user experience. Now, thinking about Apple, Apple has made it very well known that they want to be the central location for all patient data. Now think about the playbook that Apple uses. When you are looking at the music industry, Apple took the majority of profits for years from the music industry by being that thin software layer, 
right? Sure. And that's the same playbook that they're looking at with healthcare. Not only do they have that single lead EKG on the Apple Watch, over the next five years, expect the Apple Watch to be significantly more multifunctional, right? And mm -hmm. so they're controlling the data endpoints, data inputs, and then thinking about the fact that they partner with almost every health system and hospital in the United States. So you can go into your Apple Health app and in like 20 seconds, a couple swipes of a button, you suddenly can download the patient portal side of your EMR into the Apple Health app where it aggregates it for you and then gives it back to you in information that you can easily find, right? If I want to see my lab results, I just click LabCorp inside the app and I will see all of my lab lab tests for the past few years. And so they really want to be that company that controls the data because where the money is going to be over the next five to 10 years is going to be in the data. That's very interesting because it gets back to that diagnosis problem. Uh, that is, if you're able to have like a wider uh, set of data points and you're able to make predictions based on, and let's say, again, if you're kind of like the player that centralizes all that and improves the experience in accessing EMRs, uh, definitely you'll be able to make better, you know, predictions based on the correlation of these data points. It makes me think about multiple sclerosis. It's it's very hard to diagnose such a such a disease, right? Because you start having some problems, you know, by walking and then you go to an orthopedist, but they do not really understand what's going on. Uh, then you have like sight problems. And so you go to uh, an ophthalmologist. They do not really like, it's not that the first thing that comes up to their mind is uh, you have multiple sclerosis. So if we're able to find an aggregator that is able to tie in and maybe make predictions on the fact that you show these two plus other symptoms, maybe something that happened with you in the 90s or that happens every day with a number of people uh, might not be going on. Not only, of course, multiple sclerosis, but a number of... Uh, so it's for good, right? Uh, you see that as a positive uh, thing, definitely. There's also the backside, uh, the downside in a way, that is uh, um, centralized players might own that data. What's the concern related to that? Uh, so most people are thinking along the lines of privacy and security, right? So yeah. like if these other companies all own the data, um, is it HIPAA compliant? Is it safe and secure, right? So um, that's number one. But number two, the people who control that data are the ones who are gonna be able to do the predictive analytics. And so yeah. look at a company like Bioformis. Bioformis is amazing. It's a platform that enables both decentralized clinical trials, so clinical trials in the home, but it also does the hospital at home and acute care at home. And because they are that platform that integrates and aggregates all of the wearable tech data, all those HIPAA compliant blood pressure monitors and pulse oximeters, and then integrates it into the EMR. So they're that platform that plugs both into the patient at home, but also into the doctor's office. That is the kind of company that can be very, very valuable over the next 10 years. And that's able to do that rich predictive analytics. And so exactly like in your, your case with MS, absolutely, it's gonna aggregate all of those um, pieces together, right? The eyesight or the neurological problems or the gait problems. And it's going to be able to analyze that and give a probability, meaning uh, you know, AI doesn't say, oh yeah, you, you have multiple sclerosis. AI can then, um, when you have inputted all the right data, it can say, okay, the probability is 82% for this, 79% for this, 32% for this. 
And companies like Digital Diagnostics, which are uh, doing a lot of image analysis and they have FDA cleared software, instead of having that black box, like you don't really know where the, where the information is coming or how the AI actually came up with the answer, companies like Digital Diagnostics, actually you can dive in deeply. And you can say, okay, well, AI, the AI said it was 87% possible that it was multiple sclerosis. You can dive into that and see why they actually thought that. That's really interesting. And you mentioned uh, the decentralized uh, company that provides these services. And decentralization is one of the uh, buzzwords, especially since when Web 3.0 uh, became uh, more and more popular. Well, it had also some, uh, you know, critics and said this was all a fad because uh, NFTs and all of these technologies were also used for speculation. But there's also some really, really like uh, strong fundamentals behind it. And one is decentralization. And this makes me think, uh, or at least ask you about your perspective around uh, uh, Web3 technologies uh, related to healthcare. Uh, we can name, again, the metaverse or uh, even NFTs. NFTs might be interesting because it might have some applications uh, with patients' data because uh, patients can have uh, their uh, control over the data. But uh, related to the metaverse especially, I'm curious because a lot of people say it's a fad. Other people say, you know, immersive technologies can really revolutionize healthcare. Um, how do you see that happening? So the way I see the metaverse is a little bit different from what they are talking about, meaning it needs to be immersive. To me, it's really a blending of the physical and the digital world. Right. Yeah. And so whether that is augmented reality apps or if that mm. is a full on virtual reality, uh, it really is about about really connecting the physical to the digital. And so yes. over the next 10 years, we're seeing a lot more kind of sensors going into the home, making your home a smart home. So um, even companies like CVS have a smart device that has a speaker, it has sensors for the wall that do room temperature as well as air quality. And then they wear a sensor on their body for things like fall detection and to immediately press for uh, 911. And this is for aging in place. And so really starting to think about the fact that CVS is already doing this, right? We're gonna see more and more sensors going into the home and onto the body and into the clothing, right? And that really blends the whole digital as well as physical worlds together into one, what I would think of as the healthcare metaverse. True, because it's true, it doesn't really have like 3D or again, that kind of like clone or virtual replica of a person. It's just the, you know, accessibility of real-time data that is able, even in clinical trials, again, this startup on learn.ai, I think they actually collect so many data points in real time that they're able to create a digital twin, which is, again, not a clone of yourself walking on the street. It is more of this whole set of data that is able, for example, in a clinical trial to have uh, you take the drug undergoing the clinical trial and you're Digital Twin, of course, uh, uh, is not taking that. Neither is taking any placebo. It's just, you know, data out there. And you can compare yourself and how you can react with yourself without having taken that drug. So instead of comparing you with someone that is very similar to you, but although he or she is not the same person as you, uh, you can do it with yourself. And so this, of course, makes uh, clinical trials, might make clinical trials much more assertive. So I definitely also agree with you that it shouldn't be anything three-dimensional and immersive and just for socializing and gaming. But, uh, you know, as it 
was sold to us, but definitely in healthcare, uh, there's a lot of potential. Although in AR and VR, namely augmented reality and virtual reality, I think there are there is a number of applications in uh, uh, maybe surgery. Um, do you see any in that space? Oh, yes, of course. So uh, there's a lot going on in virtual reality and rehabilitation. So uh, in the world of stroke, or, or brain injury, or even training the brain. And so companies, uh, there's a company out of Switzerland that is able to uh, essentially do the mirror technique with a stroke uh, rehab patient. And what that means is it, the mirror method has been used for decades. If you have a patient who say left arm is partially paralyzed, what they do is uh, they show you a mirror image of your right arm in the physical world to be able to trick your brain. And it's very okay. difficult to do because it's hard to trick your brain with a mirror. But when you go into high-end VR and you layer True. an image of the, the healthy arm over the, the uh, par partially paralyzed arm, in VR, when you move your, your good arm, it looks to your brain like you are also moving the arm that's partially paralyzed. And that is enough to trick the brain into thinking it's real and uh, create all these new neural connections. And so you, they're seeing a lot of advanced... Um, advanced you know efficacy meaning uh they didn't think someone's arm would ever be able to move you know perfectly again and then all of a sudden they're really seeing some massive results and so that company is in over 20 countries already wow that's really interesting because it definitely can impact it's more accurate in at least you know it it, it makes it more real because i think the mirror you know it makes it more real and uh, definitely, so this would be definitely an AR application that is really impactful. And one question, Robin, that I think also our listeners are having at this point, you're able to explain very complex topics in such a, a, a good way that, you know, definitely your career is based on that, which is as a keynote speaker, you're definitely going out there and trying to explain to companies uh, the potential of uh, technology in healthcare and, uh, and more. And so I... As a speaker myself, I wanted to learn something with you uh, beyond healthcare now and that I've taken this opportunity. So basically, how do you think, you know, uh, is the best way uh, to communicate these topics? I mean, um, should you go down the technical route or you should simplify? What's the kind of like communication tools that you use to make yourself understood through your keynotes, through your books, uh, and, uh, you know, eventually made you become one of the most requested speakers in the U.S. Uh, uh, in the topic. Uh, which tips would you have for anyone that is also out there or maybe within a traditional company trying to, uh, you know, trying to evangelize people, use technology more, to innovate more? Uh, how should they go along that route? So I have two different methods I use. So the first one is really understanding who you're trying to talk to. So if I'm going and giving a keynote to 4,000 dermatologists, I'm going to use language that dermatologists understand and, and uh, use themselves. Uh, and so the same is true, like it depends on the audience. So I really change the language. But secondly, I think about the fact that around the age of 12 or something, at least in this country, we start to diverge interests. And so one person becomes an expert in surfing and the next person's gonna be an expert in calculus and the third is an expert in space. And all of those things come with their own foundational vocabulary and foundational understanding of what's kind of going on. And so I say, make sure that you're, everything you're putting out there for a general audience is accessible and readable by a 12 year old. 
And because, you know, if you are a rocket scientist and you went to MIT and you work for NASA, that does not mean you're going to understand what I'm talking about when I'm talking about things like pulse oximetry or stethoscopes and all the, you know, the basics behind that, because that's not their field, right? They're a genius, probably. They're incredibly smart, but they, they don't have the vocabulary and the foundational concepts. And so that's why I say, you know, if, if a 12-year-old can understand what you're saying, that rocket scientist can as well. That's really interesting because oftentimes, you know, talking as if you know, a leader were a 12 years old is much better than just talking as if he or she were a leader themselves. Because when you talk and speak to a leader about something, oftentimes they kind of like uh, receive that with their preconceptions and past beliefs and past successes. And I think that's why it is so hard oftentimes in traditional businesses for you know, name it, chief digital officers or heads of innovation and, uh, you know, C-levels that have the responsibility to kind of like reinvent the business. Uh, that's why oftentimes it is so hard for them to uh, make things happen because they go and approach it, you know, along that technical, you know, jargon and they try to explain that in a way that is not really uh, impacting the leaders. And uh, so... Besides this communication style, uh, definitely leaders are very interested also in, you know, future trends and things like this. And so since you interact with a lot of these leaders, um, what do you tell them when it comes to how they can better prepare their businesses for the next decade in healthcare? Because definitely, again, uh, they have to first understand these technologies and that's the communications part, but they also have to understand the impact that it might have on their business. If they understand, you know, that something going on, but it's, you know, changing the life of a patient down there, but it's not really impacting their business, you know, I don't think you will see the change that you really want to. So, how do you go about explaining the business potential as well? And how should they look at this next decade where things are so unpredictable that it's uh, hard to navigate those? Yes. Uh, so what I do is I, I do it through examples. So for okay. example, last week I gave a keynote internally at a, a large pharmaceutical company. And so mm -hmm. while I was in there, um, at the end I said, okay, uh, raise your hands in the room. How many people have heard the term digital therapeutics? And not that many had because this is a very new area of healthcare. Uh -huh. uh, the first digital therapeutic here in this country that is based on cognitive behavior therapy, which is one of the gold standards, uh, cleared the FDA in 2017, right? And now we've only had probably 30 to 45 that have cleared the FDA that are under the, the vocabulary of digital therapeutic. So to this pharmaceutical company, I told them about some of the developments that's going on. So like Otsuka Pharma has pledged $300 million in milestone-based funding for Click Therapeutics, a platform digital therapeutic company, to create an app around a medication they have for major depressive disorder. Bowringer has done the similar thing, $500 million for them to develop an app around schizophrenia. Now, those two apps are not cleared the FDA yet. They are not on the market. But by showing this other pharmaceutical company, okay, this is what these seven other pharma companies are doing. Wait a, minute, a couple of years, like unless they're one of the big ones, I, I'm telling them, wait a couple of years and see what the Otsuka one, the Bowringer one is coming out. And then there are a number around Alex Therapeutics, uh, Sidekick Therapeutics, as well as uh, Twill. 
And so watching those four platforms and all of the different digital therapeutics coming out of it over the next, say, two years, then you can dive in, right? Because we really want that, that early adopter. It's, it's, it's really kind of like instilling that sense of urgency in your audience that is saying, look, there's players out there that are experimenting things, watch them out, definitely, you know, check on them regularly, but also you're also implicitly saying they're doing something you might not be doing as much. It's like, of course, it's not that straightforward, but um, you might want to create this sense of urgency that out there things are moving and uh, uh, if they stand still and just, you know, protect their past successes and do things as they always did, uh, they might get more and more unaligned with, uh, you know, the new needs of patients, of their customers and either hospitals and so on. Um, and I think that's that's the big risk. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about customer centricity in all markets, definitely. And there's more and more talk about patient centricity. And I think uh, in the past, especially farm and healthcare, uh, were more product centric, namely they would focus on innovating starting from the product. And so they would, you know, improve either processes or kind of like features of the products and service they'd provide. But now they have to pivot to patient centricity, which gets us back to the whole data thing, which is not only, um, you know, health data, but it is also data, behavioral data on how they interact. It's like, you know, financial data. Uh, how can better health companies pivot from product centricity to really like patient centricity and be more reactive to what the patient needs, not only when it comes to healthcare, but when it comes to, you know, the way that uh, he's received at the hospital, the way that he can access his data, the way the data is protected and so on. Um, should companies look more to the patient? Because I think the patient is more and more empowered nowadays. So it depends on what the company does. So pharmaceutical companies have a lot of rules and regulations on how they are allowed to interact with the patient. But the payers do not have that same kind of thing. And so Anthem, which has now been renamed uh, Elevance Health, but Anthem uh, has distributed for free five different digital therapeutics to their patients. One around Crohn's disease, uh, COVID, diabetes, maternal health, and oncology. And so what this, this private payer, this giant private payer now is in the patient's life on a daily basis. And not only are they interacting with the patient on a daily basis, but they have a say on what the patient sees and how to keep them, you know, um, taking their medication as, as designed and things like that. True. And so it depends on the kind of company, but we're seeing some really cool early things coming out of companies like Elevance. That's interesting. You're right. Uh, should be done very carefully because it's not as easy as it might be in retail or in other sectors. Uh, financial sector is also kind of regulated, but I don't think as much as healthcare. So it's like in between, but definitely not as retail where definitely, you know, you can explore more, you can collect more and you can personalize the experience uh, uh, much more easily than with healthcare. And that's, that's uh, very interesting because uh, definitely that's a concern for people who are not really an expert. Uh, and maybe hop on these pharmaceutical companies that are actually recruiting more and more outside of pharma. This is and 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 healthcare. This this is a trend that at least I've seen, um, which was not really happening. And maybe you can confirm that. Like pharma would usually hire if you already had a previous experience in pharma. Although 
now they value more and more profiles that come from outside of the sector. And maybe this is to bring in some uh, elements of uh, uh, novelty and some inspirations, but they always have to remember about the peculiarities of pharma. Do, do you see this trend happening? Yes. Um, and I also see some of these large pharmas really partnering up with the startups. Because yes. if you think about it, every single part of being a pharmaceutical company is ridiculously hard from the research and development to figuring out which molecule is going to go you know through mouse trials and it costs billions of dollars in many cases to just get one drug to market and once you have cleared the fda with the ridiculously hard clinical trials with medications you then have to uh manufacture it right at scale and you also need to commercialize distribute and distribute it right and so every single part of a pharma company's job is incredibly hard and so that's why i'm starting to see, i think that we're starting to see a lot more partnerships with the tech companies and like the the startup tech companies because they have a type of employee with a training and everything outside of of uh of pharma but inside of like that digital side and so they really just are bringing talent on in that way. That's interesting. I have a recent friend from uh, Novartis. He was the head of digital in Brazil. He has been uh, moved to the U.S. And definitely he came from Telco. So uh, I think, you know, they value more and more these different profiles, uh, which is uh, something that uh, I really appreciate. I think it's, uh, it's, it's good for the industry uh, itself. Um, and talking about... The industry and getting back to AI, um, in one of your books uh, titled How AI Can Democratize Healthcare, The Rise of Digital Care, you basically mention democratization of healthcare through AI. And so I'm really curious to understand how do you see AI democratizing healthcare and improving access to care for patients? Uh, definitely, we talked about a number of things related to diagnostics. Um, what comes beyond that, uh, namely democratization of access? So what AI is helping enable is this massive trend on healthcare in the home. And I mentioned earlier, the private payers are really driving this with billions and billions of dollars in investment and acquisitions. Now, within that shift, AI is, is pivotal because you've got things like the continuous monitoring, right? Now, the way that democratizes healthcare is because if you think about it, one of the biggest barriers to care is location. And because location leads to all these other problems, do they have childcare? Uh, can they take time off of work? Can they afford to take time off of work? Do they have transportation? Is there public transportation? Do they have a car? Do they have a way to get somewhere? Can they leave the house? Do they have mobility issues, right? And so the people who ha have the hardest times around that type of uh, you know, problem are the ones that aren't getting healthcare. And so yes. by bringing it into the patient's home and um, not just the digital side, but of course, like nurses in the home or dialysis technicians in the home, uh, we can really start to reach those people that never otherwise had access to healthcare. And about 85% of the U.S. adults right now have a smartphone. It's that other 15% that we really, really worry about, right? So United Healthcare has now distributed over 180 smart tablets to patients who do not have a smartphone or a smart tablet already, right? And so they're trying to really help democratize the ability to even do some you know, basic telemedicine. That's, that's really interesting because when we think about basically even clinical trials and accessibility of those, which is 
of course, it's not related directly to democratization uh, or to access, but in a way can trickle down the better and easier uh, is to recruit for clinical trials, the faster dry, new drugs can go to market. So I really see a lot of uh, uh, points that definitely can help out the industry in uh, being closer uh, to the patient. And uh, that's also relates to patient centricity as we, as we spoke. Um, and, and, and now that we're, you know, and great discussions, you know, time flies. And to be honest, we're already here, here like, you know, like almost 40 minutes. And the discussion is amazing. And that's why I didn't want to end the episode before asking you a question that I think a lot of our listeners might, uh, you know, be very curious about when they hear about, you know, the impact of technology in healthcare. I definitely also do have this, um, you know, concern, at least, which is related to longevity. How far... Do you think that technology can take us towards this millennial dream of like an eternal life? Of course, I know I'm stretching it, um, but we have we already gotten close to, you know, a generation where average life expectancy is higher than 100 years or are we closer? Um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that and hopefully you tell us that we're already in that group. I don't know, but <laughs> we're, we're definitely in the group. So I think uh, so. <laughs> yeah, we're. If you're a Gen X or a millennial, you'll most likely the the um, yeah life expectancy is going to be over a hundred for people in the developed world with financial means to be able yeah. to take care of their health. Right? Yeah. Uh, absolutely, it will be over a hundred for people like us. True, and it's very much related to democratization of health, as you mentioned. Uh, it's not maybe for yeah. everyone, and so that's why the more accessible is health, the the better for everyone. And so how do you see, for example, these improvements? Though, like um, longevity is something that will put a lot of pressure on healthcare uh, because uh, more people will need, uh, you know, like uh, elderly care or things like these. Or technology can also help us. I know there's a lot of solutions is related to that, but uh, definitely there's also the downside of uh, it, which is you have an elderly population you have to take care of. Um, how do you see that playing out? So we are seeing robotics um, dramatically improve across the board. And so there are already uh, robotics that can lift people in and out of bed or you know, move them from bed to say the bathroom uh, and then things like the exoskeletons. So countries like Japan are using uh, exoskeletons for say their warehouse workers that are aging a little bit. And so they need that extra strength. And so when you start to think about how um, you know, it's still out there, like there's not a lot of people using exoskeletons, but over say the next 20 years, absolutely, right? Military people to aging in place. You have, you know, your gait's a little bit off or you have multiple sclerosis or anything like that. You could potentially have an exoskeleton that you can strap on and then it helps you be able to, to maneuver the way you, you used to be able to. That's really impressive. I think, you know, for who's not really like day to day as I am, uh, or our listeners are not really into healthcare and uh, innovation in healthcare every day. I think these things, you know, blow our minds. Uh, and, you know, they come as, as something uh, reassuring on uh, the way that, you know, the world is going in towards healthcare and making it hopefully more accessible and uh, uh, more impacting. So that uh, with this, Robin, I really wanted to thank you for our conversation. I think, again, as uh, I said, our listeners might have their, you know, their mind uh, blowing with a lot of new knowledge, ideas, uh, and uh, hopefully 
uh, more hope uh, about their health and what can be done in the future. And uh, I wanted to thank you and also give you the chance to share with uh, who's interested in reaching you, uh, where can they find you across social media or website. Sure. So I'm the only Robin Farman Farmian in the entire universe. Google my name and you'll see six ways to be able to get in touch with me from my website, robinff.com to the book website, democratizinghealthcare.ai to any of my social media. That's great, Robin. And also, although it's not as long as yours, I also do share this thing about, you know, a unique name because Andrea is uh, outside of Italy. It's always a female name. And, you know, oftentimes it's funny how people react to my voice and my beard. Anyways, Robin. It was such a pleasure talking to you uh, and with you about, you know, innovation in healthcare and the impact that AI and new technologies are having. So thanks again for your participation. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. And to our listeners, uh, thanks also for making it to the end. Uh, we look forward also to having you provide your feedback about the podcast and see you in the next episode of Reperception, a podcast in partnership with Inevitable Education. Thanks a lot and see you in the next one.